Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode. I'm Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for listening. In this episode, I'm talking with Kevin Dietz. Kevin is a super talented recording and mixing engineer and producer. He's worked with artists such as Placebo, Silverchair, Alexis on Fire, Billy Talent, Protest the Hero, Stone Sour, and so many more. He's also helped other engineers such as David Bottrell, Kevin Shirley, James Brown, and even more. We cover a really wide range of topics in this conversation, including a discussion about his path from getting an internship at one of the biggest studios in Canada to very quickly rising to the top and becoming a head engineer. So we share some great tips on how we did that. He also gives us some great technical advice on how to clean up our low end using high pass filters. We talk about mixing vocals with serial compression, how to keep organized using templates to speed up your workflow. And lastly, he shares some really great advice and insight on some things that you can do in order to really help master your tools faster. So things that will help you learn what different EQs and compressors sound like, and just really understand what you're listening for in your mixes. So I think we have a really great conversation. There's a lot of really good advice in here, and I can't wait for you to check it out. So let's get right into it. So Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, how you got into this? Uh, I am a producer, mixer, engineer, and I got into this line of work through the engineering side. I was on staff at uh, Metalworks Studios in Mississauga for a little over seven years, about seven and a half years. Uh, started as you know an assistant, a runner, but then staff engineer, and then eventually head engineer. And yeah, so I was there for seven and a half years. That's amazing. How, so how long did it take you to between the interning and, and becoming the head engineer? Well, I guess I, I interned there for about a month. And there were, uh, let's see, there were a, f- a few guys on staff there and a couple of them were leaving. So everyone was sort of bumping up. The head engineer uh, at the time he left, he went freelance. And so everyone kind of bumped up and they needed uh, a few more guys. So they hired, well... They got two of us on as interns, and then uh, it was probably about a month of interning before they hired us both on and said, okay, cool, you, you guys are, you're now assistants. And, it, you know, it was a slow start. As an assistant, you start out just doing the very basic stuff. And, um, you know, from there, it was just a steady progression over over time. And eventually, you just kind of find yourself as a staff engineer. All of a sudden, you're just doing sessions on your own. Uh, and then the head engineer thing, I, I can't remember exactly when that was. It might have been 2011, I think, at some point. Uh, the, the head engineer who had been bumped up when I came on board, uh, he went freelance. And the studio manager uh, at the time, Paul Gross, approached me and said, I want to name you as the head engineer. I said, great, cool. That's awesome. That's like that's like the dream story, right? Like so many people get these internships and I feel like so many people just give up after, you know, a month or two of it. And It's so no tough. One, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate. Metalworks was very busy at the time. A, a few people had left. They needed more bodies. So it, it was, um, it's a tough environment right now because there's so many people doing it and wanting to do it. So many people coming out of recording schools and things like that, and the opportunities just aren't there like they used to be in in that big studio sense, in that very traditional sense. I really wanted to do it in that traditional way, like all of my, you know, kind of heroes had, had, had done, all the people I looked up to. And I really wanted that high-level uh, apprenticeship, if you will. So... I was I was just very fortunate. It was a it was a combination of right place at the right time to get my foot in the door, and then once I had my foot in the door, uh, once I was in there, I was just full full bore, full time. Uh, they couldn't get me to leave. I just uh, you know just approached it as a full time career thing and just went, man. You know, awesome. So, what do you think made you stand out from the pack then? Because obviously, yeah, like you said, there's so many people that are trying to do this and trying to get that those spots right but there's so few spots available yeah 
Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, I mean, again, it was, I would say, a combination of right time, right place, and, uh, you know, assertiveness on my part. I went in there and I said, I want a job here. So I went in and, and um, you know, assertively pursued that opportunity. But once I got it, then it was, uh, I mean, I didn't know when I started that the internship would lead to a, a paid position, but I just, I was just there every day. I was there seven days a week. I was there full time regardless uh, because I figured, you know, I, I want to do this. So I'll just approach it like a full-time job, even if I don't know if that's what it's going to end up being. That's, that's the right attitude to have for it, for sure. You kind of have to in, in anything you do with music. If you open your own studio, you've got it like you've got to, as Henry Rollins says, you got to hit it with some tenacity, right? <laughs> you got to hit the ground running and you've got to, um, you got to just go for it. Yep. So what made you get into mixing in the first place? Like, where, are you a musician yourself? Yeah, I mean, I started out playing guitar as a teenager and um, played in a few bands. Uh, I'm from Edmonton originally, so I, you know, I did all that out there. Uh, I took, I was briefly in a music program uh, out there on guitar, learning, you know, music theory and performance and all that stuff, with the idea of 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 majoring in recording. After I was just always fascinated by the recording thing. Even in in bands, it was all about um, whenever we'd rent a PA or a four track or something to do demos. I was always interested in, in fiddling with with that stuff as opposed to you know songwriting and stuff like that. I was uh, I really liked the 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 sound aspect of it. And I went um I, I took a I took a studio course in Edmonton uh, and was kind of hanging around and, and doing some stuff out of a, a studio called Power Sound Studios in Edmonton that's run by a guy named Phil Anderson who is um, I mean he's got the best he's got the best studio out there. So Phil kind of got me started on the whole thing, and we still keep in touch. And he's he's put me in touch with people out here. Um, so he's he's been a great he was a great early mentor. And uh, yeah, where am I going with this? This is the whole backstory. Um, <laughs> it's all good. And I I just I moved out here. I wanted to uh, I wanted to pursue it full time as a career. So I moved out here, took a year of of schooling and audio engineering, and then got this opportunity at Metalworks and. Uh, yeah, hit the cool. ground running. So you said that you started with doing like going to school for like performance. It sounds like right, like guitar. Yeah, yeah. Why go that route when you knew that you wanted to get into recording? Why not just jump right into the recording side of things? Well, that's that's a good question, and that's um, exactly what after you know after a, a semester of of doing that, I thought to myself, I thought the exact same thing. Wait, why am I doing this when I really just want to jump into recording? And that's what I did. Um, I uh, I have some friends that that are that live out here now, and are you know gigging guitar players and musicians in Toronto now that went to the same program back in Edmonton. There's a lot of us from out west out here now, and uh, I've talked with them about it. It's a very you know it's a very difficult program. Think of all you know all the all the guys and girls that go through the Humber program, and that's a four year thing. And uh, I mean I admire the hell out of people that that uh do that and complete it it's it's a lot of work and admittedly admittedly i wasn't ready for that level of dedication to the instrument and uh it 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 took me a semester before i realized you know what i should just jump right into the recording thing and that that's when i uh linked up with the phil at power sound and um the the course was set from there well there's definitely something to be said for just diving right into it right rather than kind of just trying it on your own forever and, and you know, doing other things that aren't really going to help you with your end goal. So it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Although having said that, uh, you know, what I what I learned in terms of uh, music theory and, and certain things on the instrument, that's helped a lot. Yeah, I, in, I, I in don't terms of what? At like... all. Just in terms of musicality, I, I feel like, um, for me, my whole my whole approach to engineering, mixing, uh, music production on both the technical and the artistic sides. It's all, it's all about the music. It's all really about, um, elevating ideas and, and, uh, sonics, elevating those things musically. So having an understanding of music from the performance and the, I guess for lack of a better word, the, the, the theory side of music, but being able to speak that language, uh, to a degree, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm a. I'm, 
you know, some of the session players that I get to work with, they just, they blow my mind with their uh, musical knowledge and how they can apply it on the fly to, uh, to what they do. It, it, it's, that's one of my favorite parts of the job is getting to work with, with high level musicians like that. They just, I admire them so much. Well, it makes all but, the difference yeah. too. And your sessions go by Absolutely. way easier when you have great players too. Oh man. Yeah. Big time. But but it, it it helps me too because uh you know we're able to communicate ideas and it's interesting what happens when you uh start thinking less technically. All obviously that stuff's gotta be you've gotta have that locked down and you've gotta have that running in the background at all times. But when you when you have that going subconsciously, I guess, and and you're consciously focused on the music and you're using all those studio tools and all the gear and, and, and the mixing techniques and whatever, recording techniques, to really elevate the music, that I think that's where that's where things really start to shine. That's, yeah, I mean, that's what uh, I'm, I'm constantly in search of and that's what I try to, you know, practice and preach. That's awesome. So in terms of the producing side of things then, how involved do you like to get in ter- when you're producing an album? Like, do you get involved in a lot of the songwriting or do you like to kind of just leave that to the band and then you stick to just the engineering side? Like how, what, what's, what's your role as a producer? I, I like to be, I like to be very, very involved in terms of the songwriting. I've never, I've never, you know, reckoned myself a, a, a songwriter. That's not my strong point. I'm, I, I always, do best when the the spark of inspiration comes from the artist and they have a really solid idea or a song, even if it's just a piano and vocal or piano and acoustic guitar, or if it's a, you know, a four or five piece band, if they have the basic arrangement and the basic outline of what they want to do from there, I can jump on and I've got ideas and arrangement things and we can work together. We can collaborate and come up with something great. That's, that's where I feel I'm really able to jump on, but I do like to do that early in the process. I, I, Pre-production is uh, is essential. Getting it, even just uh, oftentimes if if you're working uh, with someone from far away and they're coming in just for the studio sessions, you know they don't really have time to come a week before where we can rehearse and stuff like that. Getting the demos and just getting familiar with the songs and talking with them about the arrangements and uh, going over some ideas beforehand. It's just it's so valuable. So I, I like I like all of that. I like yeah, getting involved. Sure. Yeah. So you said you you like to focus on the arrangement and all that kind of stuff. In your opinion, what makes a good song then? Well, uh, well, the arrangement is a is a huge part of that. Um, what else? Like, is there something that you're trying to really like push, like a direction you're trying to push the band in when they come to you with an idea? Like, how do you di- like what What's your thought process when you get those demos, and how do you flush those out into a fully produced track? That always depends. It depends so much on the song itself, the vibe. Uh, what, you know, you talk with the band, you talk with the musicians, the artists about about what you know they want, and they might have some very specific references or some very specific sounds thereafter or a specific vibe. So that that changes uh, person to person. But I think overall, what for me, what makes a good song is uh, like a great a great groove or like a feel rhythmically. That's always, I know that I personally gravitate toward that a lot. Um, like a solid melody that supports the, um, the emotion of the song. And, and like we were just talking about the arrangement, so, something that, that makes sense and keeps the song moving along. I've, um, I've, I've heard in, in recent years, there's, there's, there's a couple songs I can, I can think of by big artists that I've heard on, on the radio, pop songs and I I just I can't get into them because the arrangement makes no sense to me. Things are things are not moving. It seems really jerky and and all of a sudden you've got another melody coming in that is not really related to what was happening before. Just things that don't to me just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And that that's a kind of a pet peeve of mine. I, I like, you know, I like con- <laughs> arrangements that that work that sound good. And I, I'm uh, with and, you. Uh, and then just an, an inspired performance, you know. Um, I like. I want to hear. I want to hear the musicians digging in, or or being, you know, nice and soft and emotional, whatever the song calls for. But I just want to believe what I'm hearing. I don't want to feel like they're putting it on. Like make you know, make me believe what you're what you're singing and playing. Yeah, it's got to be authentic. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what's a common mistake that you see a lot of artists make before entering the studio? The, the, the thing that really comes to mind is when an artist or a band tries to cram way too much into a studio session, like in a short period of time, they, re- they want to do, yeah, we want to get a full album live off the floor in one day. Okay. You know, that's, um, those are some lofty goals. <laughs> I, there's very few people that can pull that off. And I don't think, I don't know why anyone would want to. Uh, it's not to say that everything has to be a certain way and compartmentalized and no, we have to do drums and then we'll overdub bass and then we'll overdub this. There's, there's many different ways to approach record making, but, uh, you've got to talk about those things and you've got to give them enough time to make them happen. I mean, I've been on sessions before with where things are just crammed in and it never, it never works out. Yeah, for sure. So then uh, let's shift over a little more towards your mixing side of things. You, you do a lot of mixing as well. What's your mindset when you go into a mix? How do you start? Where do you start? Do you have a typical process you follow? I guess maybe less on a technical side. The first thing I want to do is find out what the core elements of of a song are. Um, you know, is it like, a, is it the groove? Is, it, is, it, is there like a really pronounced... Uh, kick snare hat and 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 bass groove you know something like that is that the foundation of the song it's kind of like you know usually a few elements will stick out as as the main you know making up the main vibe of a song and they're providing the foundation and the core emotion of the song so i'll i'll start with those and a lot of the times it is uh the rhythmic elements i think that's i think that's just like a natural thing that you know human beings gravitate toward and so, yeah, I'll, I'll start with those. But then other than the rhythmic elements, you know, there might be like a like a keyboard melody or there might be a, a, a guitar part that really stands out and you realize that that, yeah, okay, this is going to be a core element. So I need to get, I need to get that kind of in the forefront or where it needs to be first before these, these other parts that are maybe more support parts. So it's all, it's really all about the core elements. Uh, Daniel Lanois calls it the center. He's like, get your center right. I remember him saying in one interview and he usually means the vocal by that. Yeah. He, he records the vocal sometimes first and then builds around that. So when you're, when you're mixing and you're going at it from that perspective, in terms of your levels and gain staging and all that kind of stuff, do you typically start by trying to get things at a, at a certain level and then build around that? Quite often, yeah. Sometimes I mix completely in the box and, and sometimes I go uh, like a hybrid setup. Like I have, I have an SSL bus compressor and a little, little summing mixer, a dangerous summing mixer and uh, a, um, a, uh, this company called Sonic Farm out of Vancouver. These guys make these really high-end uh, tube and transformer boxes, preamps and things like that, but that also have line inputs so you can mix through them. So it's kind of like going through the center section of a console, in which case, you know, you're dealing with different levels. So yeah, I will I will often start out by kind of sussing out what my what my kind of what, what my nominal level is. And I have it set up so that I, you know, I run a tone through and I find out what zero VU is running through my system. And uh, I, I work from there. So a lot of it is, is second nature. But yeah, you you, you kind of got to know how far up to push that kick drum, you know, and how much it's making the bus compressor bounce. And then you go from there, things like that. So yeah, I will, I will suss out the initial levels first with those main elements. And um, that's kind of, that's kind of a tricky thing to explain technically, because it's different if you're completely in the box versus if you're incorporating some analog gear. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one to explain <laughs> technically, I guess. Yeah. It's all about knowing gain staging and unity gain and things like that. All just important engineering principles that if you understand those things, you can figure it out whether you're in the box or or completely analog or a combination of both. I usually set aside a whole day for for a mix. Like I, I I block that off in my calendar, and in terms of concentrated mix work, I'd say generally eight hours or so. Sometimes I'll I'll you know finish up something at midnight or whatever, and then I'll go okay, I'm gonna leave it here, 
and then I'll listen with fresh ears in the morning and, you know, make some final tweaks and then I send it off. So, so sometimes it's good to just, when you're at the end of, you know, when I'm at the end of the day, when I'm at the end of the mix, I, I shut it down and then I come back to it first thing the next day with fresh ears and then send it off. So, you know, just so I have that, I have that extra little refresher before I um, send it off to the artist so yep. that, you know, gives me a little little buffer to make sure I'm I'm cool with everything first. Makes a lot of sense. And how do you know when you're done a mix? You just kind of just kind of feel it. I don't really know. I don't I don't think I've ever been a real tweaker type, you know, like like mm-hmm. obsessed over the minutia to the point where I can't settle on something. I'm not that guy, so I just kind of kind of feel it. I have a roadmap in my head, you know, oh, I'm going to do vocal rides, I'm going to automate this and that. And as I go through something that I may not have heard before, oh, you know what? I should really bump up the the vocal delay when when the chorus hits. So then I'll go back and do that. I might jump around a little. There's there's a point at which I feel that I'm sort of jumping around. I'll be doing some vocal rides, but then I'll be like, oh, you know what? I gotta bump up that bass note there. I'll do that, and I'll I'll jump around, do all these little things, and then I'm kind of at the end of the list, at the end of my mental list, and I go, okay. Then I listen through and I go, nothing's standing out to me. I guess it's done. I, I think it's important to have that list, like you said, because so many people just are constantly searching for stuff to do, right? And yes. and especially coming back to it the next morning, like you said, I think that's a thing a lot of people do as well, where they get burnt out working long hours on a mix and the next day they come back to it. And then it's like, okay, well, what what, what am I supposed to do to it now that I have yes. fresh ears, you know? Yes. So I, I think having that list is definitely a big a big thing. No doubt. And also uh, to to speak to that about the coming back next day, also taking frequent breaks throughout the day. That's another thing. Like I might I might set aside a, a, a day for a mix. And I might have other stuff to do too. So I might work on two songs in a day uh, if it's if it's like, you know, the same artist to not r- totally get out of that headspace. But um, taking ear breaks is really important too. I mix mostly from home. So uh, I can, you know, I just walk into the kitchen and grab a coffee or I take uh, I take the dog out for a walk and, um, you know, 15 minutes of of uh, getting your head out of the uh, out from between the speakers, maybe getting some fresh air um, and some sunshine. It's amazing what that can do. You come back in and things just sound so much clearer and it just makes more sense. Yep, definitely. So you've been doing it for a little bit, of, for quite a while now. At what point did you feel like you started to really make good mixes? Yeah, um, I guess being on staff at a studio, you end up mixing some stuff pretty early on, you know, starting with, uh, um, I mean, I guess I, I, the first sessions I would do on my own would be maybe someone bringing in an instrumental and singing over it. Or, uh, you know, a singer-songwriter doing just an acoustic guitar and a vocal. Or or a guy coming in with like a hip-hop two-track and, and, and rapping over it and layering some vocals. And then you, you quote-unquote mix that, you know. <laughs> so, um, but those don't really count, do they? In, in terms of <laughs> actual mixing. There is some artistry depending on how, how slammed it comes to you, right? <laughs> yeah. But I guess so. From there, you know, you start recording full bands and and you do stuff, and some of it's okay, and some of it's not very good, and whatever. I guess for me, I remember working with with a band um, who these guys were all music school guys. Actually, I think they had gone to the same music school I did in 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 Edmonton. They were uh, they were from out west as well. Uh, doing doing some heavy kind of progressive rock stuff, very uh, tool-ish, but a lot uh, a lot more um, I don't know, a little more crazy than that. Very good, really cool stuff, really heavy, great, all great musicians. And uh, when I mixed that stuff, it turned out it turned out really well. And this is this is probably. Mm, seven years ago. This is probably, it was probably like summer 2010, I think. 
And I remember finishing up that stuff and going, man, this turned out really well. And I played it for some people and they were like, yeah, great. Uh, the uh, the uh, mastering engineer who mastered it said, good, good work. Yeah, he'd, he'd actually been coaching me on some mixed stuff and, and he mastered that and he said, hey, good, good job. This sounds really solid. I was like, yeah, it's really good. I throw those songs on sometimes to sort of refresh my mind on what that was all about. And I still like them. That's, that's the sign, right? I still like it. And, you know, I got the, I, I feel like I really got the low end tight on, on those tracks. So I thought, yeah, this is good. Now, again, the musicians were fantastic. These guys were great players. There was no, uh, there was no editing to be done. There was no tuning to be done. These guys brought their A game and it sounds fantastic. So I was very free to focus on the artistic elements of that. But yeah, it, it turned out great. And I still, I still really dig those songs and those mixes. So there you go. That's awesome. All uphill from there. So you had mentioned that one of the things in that specific track that, you know, you, you look back at it now and you say, oh, I, I nailed the low end and it's awesome. Um, do you have any tips for getting the low end right? Is there something that you do in all your mixes or yeah, any yeah. T- trickery? Well, um, I think one of the big things is uh, with low end, your, your monitoring is really important and... Uh, your room, like you don't want those two things working against you, right? This particular band that I did that we were just talking about, I recorded them at at, at Metalworks in 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 the Neve room, and then we, we mixed their stuff in the SSL mix room. It's a very good mix room. It's very, uh, it sounds great. The low end is super accurate. Everything's just super accurate in that room. So that really helped. You know, I could turn it up loud to check like the impact of it and I could listen quiet and it was, it would, it just translated really well. So I was working in a great room with great monitors. Now, you know, uh, that's a professionally built studio with an SSL console and, you know, a couple sets of monitors and mains and all this stuff. I don't have that at home when I mix, but, uh, you know, I have good, I have good monitoring, um, I've treated my room a little and I, I, you know, keep the volume at a level where I know I'm not going to be, uh, causing problems for myself. Uh, so that's an important factor just, just from the outset, you know, but other than that, on a, on a technical level, I think for me, a big part of getting the low end right is, uh, uh, high pass filtering. Just a lot of like, you know, I get rid of low end information that or or noise that's not needed, like rolling off, you know, below a hundred hertz on guitars, for example. Uh, but even using a high pass filter at say forty hertz or thirty five or forty five hertz on subs and things like that, I've recently you know been doing a lot of uh, pop music, and so you've got a lot of synth stuff and a lot of low end synth stuff. Um, and you listen to pop records and hip hop records and uh, like all, all the OVO stuff. And the low end is is just unbelievably uh, rich and it goes super low, but it translates on all types of speakers. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I'm looking to achieve that type of thing. And, and for me, I've found that, uh, you know, maybe there's some subs hitting, but they don't need all that speaker shaking information that might be coming from something else or a really, a really low bass pad, you know, that might not have all the low end. It might be the subs that are carrying that low end. Um, and in, in a rock mix, you know, it's about, um, where does the kick drum, you know, how low does that go versus the, the, the bass, you know, and what are they playing and how do they fit together? So it's, I think it's a combination of balance and, um, EQ to mostly taking away, not necessarily boosting, uh, but but oftentimes it's taking away. So high pass filtering, I I'm I got high pass filters on everything, man. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Yeah, I, I think so that's important. one of those things that so many people overlook because they either just can't hear it or they don't think to use it, and it's really like one of the easiest things you could do to just really clean up all of that. Oh yeah, crap at the bottom, right? Admittedly, even if even if I don't uh, lately with the pop stuff I've been doing, um, 
I'll, I'll put a filter on it and I'll A, B it at, you know, 40 hertz, 35 hertz, 30 hertz, things like that. And I'm, I'm hearing a difference. It's very subtle, but I am hearing, I'm really concentrating on the sound and I am hearing a difference. But even on stuff uh, like, say, uh, an electric guitar part, a rhythm part or something, I'll, I'll sweep that high-pass filter up, up, up I go until I hear it affecting something, right? And then I'll back it off a little. But so essentially, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I filter out stuff that I don't even necessarily hear it having an effect on. But I do it anyway because I'm like, if there's any kind of low-end rumble down there, I just want it gone. And, you know, for the ease of just throwing a, a filter on there and, and just you know it's gone, right? Yeah. So It's so yeah. easy to do. It's so easy to do that I'm kind of like a lot of times I just I throw one on as a matter of course, just like yeah, I'm sure. And it, and I'm it just saves you like so much headroom too that people don't even realize. Absolutely, yeah, big time, big time. Oh, and you see it if uh, it affects compression big time, right? So mm-hmm. low end will just eat up your compressor. So yeah, very very important. Yeah, high pass filter. For sure, I'm I'm with you on that. So what's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're crazy for? Do you have like any go-to like wacky chains that you like to try out and get creative with? I don't think I really do anything crazy or or really out there because I feel like I mainly set up a mix a lot like an analog console and outboard gear. Like I I I use Pro Tools, I mix in Pro Tools. And uh to me Pro Tools is very much that. It's set up like a like a studio, like I'm like I'm used to. That's what I learned on, that's what I came up on. Um, you know, tra- basically tracking on an even mixing on an SSL. So I apply that type of mentality to it. Of course, it, w- when you're working in the box, you have all this extra routing power and it's it's uh you know, you can uh, you've got if you've got one Fairchild plugin, that means you've got as many Fairchilds as you want or, you know, so you can certainly do stuff like that. I guess I've just been experimenting with some parallel stuff. Um, I, uh, what else, what else might I do that's a little weird or wacky? I can't, nothing, nothing jumps out as, uh, any kind of like crazy technique. Um, I guess on a vocal chain, I'm, I'm, compressing multiple times i might have a 1176 or la2 i'm then i might have a multi-band might have a ds or an ssl uad ssl channel strip and i'm compressing there and then i might have the waves rvox at the end of it to so i might be compressing three or four times potentially it all adds up right it all adds up yeah but i don't think that's really crazy i think um i think a lot of people do that so and when you're doing that you're i'm only assuming that you're going fairly light with the compression at each stage yeah uh, light or um i guess as much as needed right Mm -hmm. sometimes it's yeah sometimes it's light or uh if the vocal is already fairly even and compressed then you know you might go heavier just for an effect and of course a multi-band compressor I use that for um, only when needed, but I'll use that to sort of even out a vocal tonally. And then you do get some gain. You do get some some a little bit of uh, you know level compression where you're where you're just controlling the dynamics. But you also get that uh, you know you also get an, a more even sound tonally. So yeah, it all depends. It's it's yeah. hard to say, but yeah, I, I would say subtly to medium per stage. No one compressor is ever carrying the entire load. And if they are, if it would get more aggressive as it goes down the chain. As it goes further to the end of the chain, I would say the compression gets a little more aggressive. Yeah. I- I'm with you too on that because I think it's like you want to t- shape the sound first and then add the character typically at the end, right? I think that, that's a great – yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So you've worked with um, – obviously some some smaller bands as you were starting off at the studio and then now you've kind of got to that level where you're working with a lot of bigger bands and you've done stuff with bands like placebo or silver chair yeah. and alexis on fire all that kind of stuff how do those sessions differ from working with smaller bands if at all you know the process doesn't really differ it's generally the same 
process. It's just that most often independent or smaller artists don't, they just, they don't have the budget to spend as much time as a more established artist or band. Uh, and that's really what it comes down to is having the enough time to get things done. Um, you know, the experience of working with a big band who has a bigger budget and spend more time and it's a little more high level, it translates down to working with smaller artists. You're, um, I'm fortunate to to have gotten to do sessions like that where I can then take what I learn at that high level and and translate it down to independent artists I work with and every everything from little production tips and tricks to the workflow to uh you know miking techniques or or performance techniques or anything like that it all it all translates down so I mean the sessions they differ for kind of the obvious reasons, really, just that there's more of everything, right? But I guess with uh, more experienced artists, they also approach it differently because they've, you know, they've made, uh, I mean, you know, Placebo made four or five records before I got to work with them. And uh, so it's like, you know, they know what they're doing. They know the process already. They know the process already. So, I mean... That was one of my favorite sessions of, of all time, really, because it was just so... There was a producer, an engineer, and I was the assistant. And they were very defined roles. Uh, and, you know, I was kept very busy on that session and, you know, very happy with um, what I contributed to it as part of the team. And uh, it was just... It was really, really efficient and uh, it, was just, it was just great. So something... It really ran like a well-oiled machine, a real well-oiled engine. You know, there's still lots to do, and there's no there's no slack in our corners cut at all, of course. But it's just great to see to work with all these people who are on their A game, and so that really you know challenged me to okay, I gotta I gotta be on my shit too. Yeah, I guess that's uh, you kind of touched up on something there, where like you almost had a team of people with these bigger sessions where everyone had their own specific role, right? And the smaller sessions, it's yeah. usually like you're playing, you're wearing all the hats, right? That's a good point too. I didn't, I didn't think of it like that, but that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, on so many things I do now, I'm the producer, engineer, and mixer or co-producer, engineer, and mixer or co-producer and engineer and someone else mixes or whatever, you know, but yeah, you're often wearing multiple hats. Um, I think that's, I think that's more of a trend these days, you know, I think it's really, and especially for, um, our generation of engineers and producers and mixers and stuff. Uh, and, and uh, this new generation of, of artists coming up, um, just in terms of everything from budgets to time to, yeah, it's, it's a lot smaller scale. It's a lot more in-house, you know, it's yeah. a close, it's a closer circle. Uh, Again, it all kind of it all kind of still translates down from a from a bigger session where you have all those roles. Um, you have you know one person doing each role like that. It does still trickle down to uh, um, to being you know one 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 guy producing and recording a band and that you know you're going to mix later. You can still take elements of all that, but you know, admittedly, you do have to keep your eye on, you know, five different things at once, and you're trying to do it in a shorter amount of time. So it's, it's tricky. For sure. What's a good lesson that you've learned from another producer? I think in, in general, from all of these people that, that I've been fortunate to work with, I think the overall lesson I've learned is that it's really, it's all about your ears. Because everyone approaches recording or mixing in different ways, but it all comes down to using your ears, you know, it's not necessarily the gear, right? I've seen people, you know, kind of get obsessive over writing down, they'll be in a session, they're looking at, at, oh, how does so-and-so EQ a kick drum? And how do they EQ this or that? And to me, I've always thought, well, that's, that's kind of goofy because, you know, every kick drum is going to sound different. Like, what is the source sound like? Uh, so it's, it's, it's always been more important for me to figure out why they're doing what they're doing as opposed to exactly what they're doing. It's like, why are you boosting that frequency? Oh, it's to get this out of the sound. So that might be a different, it might be a different frequency on a different source, but it's it's more like, why are you doing that? 
it all just really comes down to the mindset behind it. Absolutely. And yeah. every, everybody's ears are going to be different and everyone has a different view of what the sound should sound like. But it's getting into the mindset of, okay, why are they treating it this way? And what's the effect they're going for and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, that so I think that was probably the biggest, uh, the uh, overall in, in general, the biggest lesson to learn was use your ears and yep. getting some good ear training in the, in the process, right? That was of course a big benefit too. Of course. And get, and get the sounds correct at the source when recording. That is crucial. It's huge. Huge. So many people think they could fix it in the mix, but at that point it's like too late a lot of the time. Yeah, it's really, that's one thing where there's no, there's really no ambiguity on it. The whole, you know, everyone, there's memes about it and people joke all the time, oh, fix it in the mix. That is one thing that is 100% true. If if at any point you're at a stage where it's like, oh, fix it in the mix, you're in trouble. You, you definitely have to get it right at the source. I, I yes. know that there's, there's always those people that like, I think it was Gene Simmons who said like, you, you can't polish a turd, but you can spray paint it gold. But yes, at, but at the end of the day, it's still a turd, right? So, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so you got to get it right at the source for sure. So we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. Can you think of an example of something that maybe you're in an obsession and something went disastrously wrong or something like that? And and what did you learn from that experience? Oh yeah, I I I probably have a story or two of some studio train wrecks some of which i was i was definitely you know mostly responsible for um i don't know i know don't know that i'd get into specifics of those but i think right. anyone anyone who anyone who was an assistant at um at a a large studio will definitely have some stories of times when they uh when they definitely fucked up the, everyone will have those i've even heard stories about very famous uh, mixers or engineers who, who someone said, oh yeah, so and so they were, you know, I worked with them when they were, and they, you know, did something that was like, they made a big mistake, and you always hear back in the day, someone, oops, I act, I, I hit record, but the other track was armed, and I erased Buddy's guitar solo or something <laughs> like that. These things happen, and and you're right, we, everyone learns by those by by those mistakes. Um, I mean, the main thing that I always tried to take away from things like that, be they major or minor, was, uh, you know, <clears throat> I would say, say to myself, okay, you know, pay attention, always pay attention, concentrate on what you're doing, and if you don't know something, ask. I've, I've, I've rarely had an issue when I admit that I don't, you know, uh, when in the past when I haven't understood what's going on or, or someone's instructions aren't clear, I've never had a problem asking for clarification on it. And when I when I work with uh, assistants or young engineers or interns or something, that's the first thing I say. I say I always say, never feel like you can't ask a question. There there are no there are no stupid questions, and um, I, I will explain. So never feel like you can't ask a question yeah. always that's the totally open because it's better for me to explain it and you do it right than having to kind of figure it out in the heat of the moment and undo something that's that's wrong yeah sometimes you just can't undo it you've done too much damage at that point yeah it's well yeah you, you really yeah you really don't want to get to you really don't want to get to that point yeah so yeah always good to just ask and clarify and yeah that's i can i can think of a a particular thing when I was assisting on a mix where I patched something wrong and it ended up sort of creating a, 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 a an issue that down the line, the mixer discovered, wait a minute, if that's patched in there, then it's going in here. And that's why it, something was sounding weird to me this whole time. And I was like, oh no. And what I should have done was ask because it was a complicated setup and a complicated patch. And, you know, I remember putting a patch cable in there and, and all of a sudden, oh, it worked. And I was like, okay, whew, we're good. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do this, but looks like it's working. But not quite. <laughs> it did, but it didn't. So it was all good. There was no, there was no major issue, but yeah, you had to go back and, uh, you know, kind of kind of go over those things again and, and fix it. So 
I started like, oh, right. I really should have taken the time to clarify and not just been like, okay, who I got it done. Okay, moving on. Yeah. It's like, get it done, but, you know, is it done right? And uh, so, yeah, asking questions when you don't know is is good. If any, if anyone ever makes makes you feel stupid for asking a question, you know, in, in an in an honest and and genuine way, uh, because you're trying to learn and you're trying to do your best and and help them out doing it. I don't really respect people that will, you know, make you feel little for for asking a question. That's, you know, you, you run into those people from time to time, but the but the best mentors are are the people who, uh, you know, inspire you to do your best work. And a big part of that is being able to ask them questions and being able to admit that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of green. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what you mean there. Can you explain it? And um, yeah, I think that they should be able to help you out in those situations. And then everyone, everyone wins. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any special tools or tips that you use that have helped you with either the quality of your mixes or just like the speed of your workflow or something like that? Uh, the number one thing in terms of workflow is just is, I mean, and this is the obvious statement of the century here, but is being, is being organized. Uh, so specific to mixing, um, having an organized mix session is, is key. And I don't, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And you know, that's a, thankfully, I feel like that's a very commonly taught practice in, in terms, you know, there's a lot of mix tutorials and things out there. And, um, I feel like the idea of having a, a super organized mix or a mix template or whatever is especially being in the box, but even on a console or whatever, um, I feel like that's a very commonly taught thing. It's a common practice now, and that's great. I mean, it's to me, it's it's crucial. I have a mix um, template. I have you know uh, things set up with reverbs and the sends all named and all that. Um, I have some signal chains preset, but you know, normally I kind of, you know, I'll, I'll experiment with a few things, but it's basically just getting, getting out of the way, uh, all the little things like make new track, set the input, set the output, bus it here, bus it there, blah, blah, blah. Put your plugin on, find your kind of the setting that you always sort of start out with. Do all that ahead of time, get all that set up ahead of time. And then you, um, you can just, you can just fly if you, if you, so I like to prep a session and get most of the nuts and bolts work out of the way first, even in terms of, um, balancing out some tracks. Like I'll, I'll even do a little bit of level balancing and then come back to it with fresh ears and really hit the creative aspects of it. Um, because mixing is a balance between both, right? It's a technical, it's a technical, uh, pursuit and it's artistic as well. So keeping, all of that organized is is really important, so it doesn't take your head out of um, out of the game. So I, I would say good, really good session prep, having all your edits done, um, and you know set up your routing, set up your busing, things like that. Uh, as much as you can get that very uh, you know hammer and nails workflow out of the way, th- so that the next time you sit down, you can just start pushing faders. That's uh, that's key. Yep, I agree with that. There's so much setup time that people waste by doing the same thing over and over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. If and if you find yourself doing the same thing over and over again, make that a preset. Make that uh, saved. That's your template. That's your template, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think people might have a a bad impression of that kind of thing or think it's cookie cutter, but it it doesn't have to be. It's um it's just smart. I mean, if you were if you always mixed out of the same studio in the analog days and you had these four reverbs and that's all you had well you'd be smart to set them up on on the four uh effects sends you know the four sends on the on the console why not just have them patched in there uh it's one you know you're going to anyway you only have those four exactly why don't you just do that you know there's nothing wrong with setting up signal chains and uh Having go-to stuff and then also realizing that, um, you know, don't just do that out of 
out of uh, out of habit, experiment, try new things. Yeah, it can but always be changed. Always be changed. But the starting point, you know, have yourself a, a, a good starting point, a good jump off point, and, and you'll just be all the better for it. For sure. So a lot of people listening to this are relatively new in their career or they've been doing it for a little while and they're trying to just step up their game a bit. What advice do you have for someone who's just getting started with mixing? Well, number one, be organized, right? So like we were just yep. talking about, get, um, you know, Try your best to figure out organizational techniques. When it actually comes to the, you know, pushing faders and actually making moves and 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 getting a sound, I think, st- you know, start with the foundation of, of mixing, which in my mind is getting a good balance. It really all starts there. You know, a good relationship between all the instruments level-wise and panning-wise, you know, don't start throwing compressors on kick drums and effects on vocals when you don't have a sense of where all that's going to sit as a as as one whole unit so i think i think starting out with just moving the faders up and down and and getting a balance is is great is great practice to start um and also really learn learn your tools because we all have access to you know a million different plugins but uh, you know, do you know the sonic difference between an eleven seventy six and an LA two A, and which one works best over the other in which situation? Or you know, with EQ, like a um, if you have a parametric EQ, experiment with how boosting or cutting affects the sound, a narrow frequency range or a wide bandwidth, things like that. I think I think if you're new to mixing, uh, there's so much. There's so many different moving parts in a mix that if you if you just start flying away, you might end up with something that's less cohesive. You know, it's pretty overwhelming all the all the plugins that are out there. Uh, yeah, incredibly overwhelming. And so you know, and most people use like three in the end, right? Oh, I know. I've bought I've I've bought so many plugins that that you know if I could go back and 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 return all the plugins that <laughs> I don't use that I've paid for, you know I could probably you know, buy a new guitar with it or something. Uh, it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, you have you know you have your go tos and and um, so you know learn like uh, start with a few just a couple plugins. Start with a, a channel strip. Get get some drums up and put a put an SSL channel strip on every one and only use that, you know, try, try stuff like that. Um, I would say that's probably a good way to, you know, get started. I think it takes some, it takes some practice and it's also, there's no harm in diving right in there and, and, you know, going nuts. You'll, you'll learn things there, but pay attention about what you're doing that isn't working so well as much as what you do like. You know, I got a lot of great feedback on mixing from um, mastering engineers. Uh, I worked a lot with a mastering engineer when I was at, at Metalworks named Scott Lake. And um, he's, a, he's a great recording engineer and mixer. And he's just got really great ears. So I would bring in uh, things I'd, I'd do with bands there. And he would, uh, he would master them. And, you know, sometimes he'd go, oh, man, dude, the vocal's really harsh. It's like cutting my ears off. You know, are you boosting a lot of this or that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. am. He's like, okay, well, don't do that. <laughs> He's like, hey, maybe try putting a de-esser on these, on these vocals. And a couple times he would, when he was around there mastering, he'd pop into the studio if I was working on something. And, you know, he'd, he'd give me some tips and stuff. And uh, eventually it got to the point where, like those, those mixes that I described earlier on, the, the heavy progressive stuff, he mastered that and, and, and he said, yeah, good work. This sounds good. So um, I've always valued the feedback of mastering engineers in, in particular on mixes. I feel like I've gotten some very useful feedback from them about, uh, you know, what I, was, what, what, I was, what I was doing wrong, I think, is to circle back to my point is um, they helped me correct errors in what I was doing, you know, like quote unquote errors. Right. But, um, I would always ask them what, like, do you have any critiques? How are my overall balances? How's the 
top end, the low end, the this, the that. What do you, what did you have to do to it to make it sound <clears throat> better? And they'd say, well, you know, you're a little, it's a little harsh in this area and a little this or that. So try this, try that. And that, that feedback really helped me. So, um, yeah, I guess my point with all that, with that long winded story is, uh, um, also focus on, <laughs> focus on the negatives, focus on what you're doing <laughs> that doesn't work as yeah. well and, and try and correct those things. Cause it's easy to be, to, oh man, I love how I made that reverb sound and that delay. Oh, it's all really cool. It's like, yeah, but you know, your low end is mushy or the top end is really harsh or listen to all that sibilance on the vocal, blah, 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 things like that. So, um, be self, be, you know, self con be a little bit self-conscious and self, self critical. Uh, you know, you can look constructive criticism is, is a good thing. Yeah. You mentioned that you often send stuff out for mastering. Do you always send your stuff out for mastering or do you do some of it yourself too? I always recommend it. I always recommend it. There are certain things where, uh, you know, an artist will go, Hey, you know what? We're, we're just, we're just doing this little EP or this couple songs ourselves. Can you, you know, can you just, you know, can you master these? And sometimes I'll go, oh, okay. Kind of reluctantly. Um, I never, ever, if, you know, sometimes people ask me straight up, they say, do you do mastering? And I say, no, I never, um, I've gotten to work with a number of great, great, great mastering engineers, and I've learned so much from them. I understand the, uh, you know, what goes into it and, and, and the art form. And it's a whole other thing. So I don't even, I don't want to be a mastering engineer. I want someone else to take over that step. So to me, I always recommend have a professional do it because there are so many great mastering engineers. And just like mixing, there are so many different methods and techniques with mastering. It's a real, it's a real art form unto itself. So I'm very interested in the process, but more so as it helps me as a as a mixer. I mean, I've even gone so far as to uh, uh, Noah Mintz at Lacquer Channel offers um, from time to time. He does these like half day or one day mastering courses, sort of. And uh, I did one of those, and it it, it was just great. Um, I've had a lot of stuff mastered uh, by him, and and uh, the first time I worked with him, he let me sit in on an EP mastering. And, you know, we just kind of talked about music and mixing and mastering and stuff like that. Of course, I let him do his thing and, and he, uh, he, he kills it. He's great. Um, so even, even though I wanted to take a little course from him to, you know, learn more about the mastering process, it certainly wasn't to be able to call myself a mastering engineer. I would rather, I would rather encourage people to budget for, uh, a really good mastering engineer because they're worth their weight in gold. So yeah, to me, if, you know, we've all got the software, right? I got, I got ozone and limiters and whatever, just like anyone else. So it's fun to play around with, but man, you know, if I have to master something I do, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm, it's a shot in the dark, you know, I'm going, is this <laughs> yeah, it? What just, am I? Just cause I you have the, plugins, the way I want make, it. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you have the yeah. plugins doesn't make you a mastering engineer. No. In fact, when I do go through and, and master something that I'm mixing, I actually sort of incorporate it as part of the process. Like I'll get the mix to a certain point and I know that my overall levels are good and, my, and, and I've got a balance and I've got the main thing going and I haven't automated anything yet maybe, but I've really got the, you know, the bulk of the mix sitting in a spot where, okay, now I'll start doing the finer points from here. At that point, I might throw on an ozone or something and and start going through the mastering chain, kind of incorporating it all into the process. So, again, it's it's sort of it's just me kind of guessing at at um, what would you know what's the best way to do it. So, you know, and that's that's not to knock anyone who is um, you know a, a younger engineer that is that, that wants to get into mastering and that is pursuing it and, and, uh, you know, trying to get, get work doing mastering. Um, just the same as anyone who would, would say, oh yeah, I, I mix music too. Well, you know, there's different levels of experience and there's, um, you know, so not, not to knock anyone, but for me personally, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's 
too high level that uh, I don't even trust myself with it. I, I trust the, uh, there's a lot of great ears out there in the mastering world. So sure. I've been I've been blown away by some mastering that's come back. I've been like, this is, yeah, there you go. There's the gold standard. That's, that's what you're looking for when you send it off that way, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about for people who are kind of in the earlier stages of their career with um, getting new clients? Any advice for that kind of stuff? Wow, that's true. I wish someone would give me advice about that. <laughs> Anyone? How can I get some more clients? It it's almost seems like it's all word of mouth. And, and it's not like you're seeing Facebook ads or something like that for engineers. Or at least yeah, I don't see any exactly. of that. Exactly. I don't either. And um, I, I feel like I feel like the general consensus is if you did see that, you might go, oh, man, that's tacky. I don't know. I'd, you know, again, not to knock anyone who does it. If, hey, do, you know, do your, do your thing. But uh, yeah. yeah, for me, it's all, it's all word of mouth. Um, again, I, I, I kind of did a very traditional route where I started at a studio and worked there for many years and worked with people regularly over that time, regular producers and engineers and, and, and mixers that would come in uh, and, bands that would come in every couple of years to do a thing or whatever. Um, and I mean, just last weekend I did a, I did a session with a guy who I worked with at Metalworks probably seven or eight years ago out of the blue. He hit me up and he said, Hey, we're looking to do some more stuff. I remember, you know, remember working with you back in the day, really, really liked it. And, you know, I see that you're, you're still doing it and doing your thing. So we'd love to work with you again. I'm like, great. You know, who, who would have thought, well, that just that's just something then about kind of just your personality and and people remembering you for that, right? Remembering the quality of your work and there you go. Who you okay, are, well, right? you've 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 brought up a very very good point there um, about how to how to get clients, um, and yeah, sure. There's there's all that stuff on the business side, but on the personal side, one of one of the best pieces of advice I ever got uh, from an engineer was he. Uh, he was talking to a, um, if I remember his story correctly, he was talking to like a session player that he knew, and the session player said, "You want to know how to get lots of work? Like, what do you what do you think it is that? How, why do I get lots of work? Why why do you you know how do you get lots of work?" The guy said, oh, "I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you got to be you got to be the best. You got to be like hot shit at what you do." He's like, "Yeah, you know, you got yeah, yeah, you got to be good, but that's that's not really it." And and he said, "Oh, I don't know what. So what is it?" He's like, "He goes, you just got to be. He's like, you got to be a good person. You got to be the, the kind of person that people want to work with, you know." So one thing I I've always loved about uh, working with working in music, working with musicians, doing the studio thing, is that you really you really get to uh, let your personality out. You get to let your personality be shown, um, and that's always that's always fun. I've always liked that, you know. Certain jobs, certain careers, your personality isn't isn't important. It's not, you know, do your job is the important part. And yeah, you've, you know, every business is a people business, right? You've always got to connect with people on a personal level because people want to work with it doesn't matter what business, what industry. People want to work with people that they like. Yes, you have to produce results. But that but that's like that's like the the minimum entry, right? That's the minimum requirement. You've got to produce results. But if you can produce results and be the type of person that people want to hang around and, you know, that they have because it's music, right? We're 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 working on art here. We're working with people's songs and and emotions and stuff. So if you can be the type of person that uh people want to be around and that they can personally trust with, you know, letting you into their head and into their art and get your hands all over their art, then um, that's a huge part of it. So that's, that's a good point you bring up about, you know, your personality and your attitude. Yeah, it's so important. Very important. Yeah. That's probably longevity wise, that's probably the most important thing to get clients and maintain clients is, is be the type of person that people want to work with and want to hang out in a room with for 10, 12 hours or more. Yeah. Well, we're getting to that point where we're going to start to wrap things up a little bit. How can people find you online and get in touch with you if they want to do some work with you or something like that? I uh, I have all the social medias, as we all do. There's yep. the Instagrams and Facebook and, I don't know, 
No Snapchat. I haven't figured that one out. I haven't Snapchat used that one is, yet either. Snapchat is more complicated than than a than mixing to me. So <laughs> forget that noise. And otherwise I have I have a website, kevindeetsmusic.com. Uh you know, just all the requisite stuff. And awesome. my, my email is kevindeetsmusic at gmail.com. So anyone awesome. feel free to hit me up for any reason whatsoever. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on here. And uh, I think you had a lot of really awesome advice. So I, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it and learn a lot from it. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to talk about this stuff. It's awesome. fun to kind of go over and, and, you know, sort of recap. And, you know, you don't think about this kind of stuff on a daily basis. So sure. it's in- interesting to try and put all those thoughts into words. And yeah, thanks awesome. for having me. Thank you, man. So that was my chat with Kevin Dietz. I hope you enjoyed that nearly as much as I did. He shared some awesome advice in there, and I had a great time talking with him. If this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, make sure to check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And on the website, at the top of the page, there's a link to download your free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a guide to help you with using EQ and compression. I show you different frequency ranges to look out for and different characteristics of different instruments that you want to be paying attention to. And the idea behind it is to help you get better results much faster with your mixes and just have a quick reference guide in case you need anything as you're going along and you feel stuck. So make sure to check that out. And if you like what you heard in this podcast, please make sure to subscribe to it on iTunes or on Android or whatever platform you use. And make sure to leave us a review and a comment on the iTunes store too, if you can. That'd be great. Helps us get exposed to many more people online and spread the word and continue to make these episodes. So once again, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. Thanks for listening.